You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. It is December 28th here, our season finale, believe it or not. This is our final podcast of the year. Boy, what a year it's been. Um, I just want to say thank you to all you guys for helping grow the conservative conscience um, and conservative review in general. Those of you who have subscribed to CRTV, which is our biggest uh, innovation this year, it's really been a spectacular year. Um, you know, We have just grown so much. And this is really the constitutional conservative hub on the internet, where we always stand by first principles, pretty much as consistent as you can get for something that has grown this large. Obviously, you know, we do have a diverse set of writers, and I can't vouch for every word of what everyone else writes. They're entitled to their views, but for the most part, we are really on the same page with first principles here. So for the coming year, make sure you get your subscription for 89 bucks to CRTV. Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin. We got Steven Crowder, by the way, who's just terrific. Um, you know, we got a lot of intellect on our side, but you also need the humor. You need to engage in the culture, and Steven does it so well. Really appreciate his addition. And you lock yourself into your subscription this year. I bet we're going to have some more shows that will be uh, – <clears throat> streaming through CRTV, so make sure you get it anytime you want, no commercials. Also support our sponsors here. Um, Another thing we're very thankful for, that we have a lot of conservatives that are willing to put their name to the controversial conservative review. And, uh, you know, July 19th to the 22nd is the Freedom Fest annual celebration Consider it the world's largest gathering of free minds, a trade show for liberty. It will be hosted this year at the Paris Resort in Las Vegas, and lots of seminars, presentations, panels, debates on a variety of topics, political, social, economics, history. Great time just to meet with people. I hope to get out there next July, depending on how busy Congress is, so definitely stop by and say hi, but we'll let you know. But make sure you don't wait till July, because you get... Um, a special early bird special f- through January 15th. Use promo code CRTV, $100 off. Freedom Fest, your trade show for liberty. All right. I want to do something special for our annual finale here. Um, we're going to have, starting next week, we're going to have a lot of legislative updates, ideas, what Congress is doing, Obamacare, immigration. I'm going to have an article coming out with hopefully roughly 50 legislative ideas that are winnable, achievable, easy to message, um, lots of different things. We're going to have some end-of-year content. But obviously, I want to discuss the 800-pound gorilla in the room this week, and that's Obama's jihad against Israel. You know, I was really hoping this would be, oh gosh, a lighter week like it usually is. Um, like I said, we only get off, we take off Friday and, and, and Monday. Um, but you know, a lot of places get off all week, 
but I was hoping it would be a lighter week. And for me, a lighter week means I get to focus more on long-term research. And long-term just means one week. Instead, we got inundated with Obama's jihad on Israel. This man will not rest until his final day in office. And, you know, how fitting that he chooses as his closing argument for eight years, his closing argument after eight years of governance, his assault on Israeli sovereignty after uprooting American sovereignty, our sovereignty for, for the last eight years. He's trying to permanently undermine Israel's sovereignty, their control over their borders, and by extension, as we'll explain, their control over every remaining inch of their very small and diminishing territory. This is a man who is prone to deracinating every history, tradition, and value um, that America was founded upon that the Judeo-Christian ethos dictate the values that America was founded upon. And, you know, the importance of Israel, the historical connection, their legal right, um, that is is just par for the course. Moral relevance, moral dyslexia, that's also part of this. At a time when even the Arab nation states are recognizing that, uh, well, Israel's no longer the problem. The problem here is really... You know, the other the other uh, Islamic Sunni insurgency groups, jihad, the Arab states recognize this. They recognize you can't blame Israel. So Obama and Kerry are now to the left of Arab nation states vis-a-vis Israel. Unbelievable. But I wanted this podcast to kind of be a standalone, to speak for all of time, to finally finally nail down the truth on the entire geopolitical cause of cause celebrity of the Palestinians. There is no such thing as a Palestinian state. There's no such thing as a an Arab Palestinian people that are distinct to the land to the west of the Jordan River. Yet this has been the one probably the all-time geopolitical hoax of our time. It is the global warming of geopolitical affairs. This has been the centerpiece of our diplomatic capital that we've expended for the last 25 years, both in Republican and Democrat administrations, and it's time this has it's time this ends. And I know a lot of people are assuming, oh man, when Trump comes into power, things are going to change. Look, it's hard to get to not be better than Obama's downright jihad against Israel, but remember we've had in the past uh, when Bush won, you know, in 2001 and took over from Clinton, we thought things would be better, and they clearly were better. Uh, but, you know, he put his arm around Israel and started demanding concessions as well. And that's the lesson of the, of the past. We need to permanently uproot the entire premise. None of this business, well, Jerusalem should still be a part of them. Or, well, we should put a Palestinian state at this time, but not at that time. Or, we should be nicer about it. No, no, no. We... There is no historical, biblical, moral, legal, geographical, or security case in America's interest to be made to create a second Palestinian state, the first being the state of Jordan. We'll explain that in a moment. And what I believe is the 23rd Arab state. We don't need another Hamas-ISIS state. It really doesn't take much, uh, much knowledge to understand this. It's pure common sense, which is what we're here for. Common sense, constitutional conservatism. But in addition, we also check out our articles. I'll link to it in the show notes 
about what Republicans can do next week. We'll talk about it on the other side of the new year as well, how they could fight back against this. And and again, not just I'm not worried about the next three weeks. There's a limit to what Obama could do. I'm worried about the lasting effect of agreeing to the premise of a Palestinian state. We need to finally get a Republican administration and a Republican Congress to reject to re, to reject the notion that there is such a thing, and that to the extent such a thing should be created, it is not in our best interest, let alone Israel's best interest. So. Let's go over a brief, brief history lesson here, and I hope it is brief. We do only get a half an hour here, but you never know. Um, let's start with the history. You know, before you get to geography and some of the modern day stuff, we're going to go through some of the, you know the brief history. There's no such thing as a Palestinian entity, at least not in the way the term is used in geopolitical parlance. Right? Palestine is not an Arab term; it's an Arabic term. Nor does the term Palestinian accurately identify the Arabs actually living in modern-day Israel, including Judea and Samaria, the so-called pre-67 borders, which is hogwash. We'll get to that in a minute. So the origins of the word Palestine, just as a baseline, right? Most people think that it's an Arab word that is referring to some Arab state that existed west of the Jordan River and was stolen by a bunch of Jews who colonized it. Couldn't be farther from the truth, right? It was a term given to Judea when the Jews controlled it roughly uh, during the times of Hadrian, roughly 2,000 years ago, that harks back to the Peleshet, the Pelishtim, the Philistines. And in Hebrew, the word is Pelishtim. Um, but the Philistines were an, an ancient um, people mentioned some 250 times throughout the Bible that they were the arch nemesis of the Jews in Judea for, for hundreds of years. And when Hadrian conquered Judea and he wanted to punish them, so he used the term as kind of a you know a, a term to, to subjugate the Jews living there, indicative of of uh, you know their their lack of control. That hey the Romans were now in control, so they called it Palestine, reminding them of their arch nemesis, the 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 ancient Philistines. Um, again. We're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of years before Islam's invented. We're, we're not even talking about ethnic Arabs there. We're talking about ancient people, pagan Philistines, um, you know, all coming from from the Emperor Hadrian during the Roman Empire to describe the Jews living in, in Palestine. Palestinians living in Palestine, the original Palestine, were the ancient Jews. But anyway, it comes from the Philistines who are Aegean pagans. Certainly they weren't Arabs. They, I mean, some where they came from is unclear. Some historians believe they migrated from the island of Crete. Um, but anyway, the Philistines of, of the Goliath fame, they are the ones that, from, from which the name pa- Palestine, Philistine, is, is derived from. So by the time of the Roman invasion around 132, um, you know, Hadrian began using the term Syria Palestinia after the ancient Philistines. And Elizabeth Speller, the author of a book, a great book following Hadrian, a second century journey through the Roman Empire, she notes that the Roman objective in renaming the area was executed by Hadrian as, <clears throat> in, in her term, Damnatio Memoria. Um, Latin term uh, term of an entire nation to just um, 
kind of erase the nation, right? To, so it, it, it's pretty fortuitous that Hadrian's goal in using the term Palestine was to erase the Jewish nation and their connection to the land. So fast forward 2,000 years later, it's no coincidence that the Arab Muslims latched onto this term to you know do the same thing, even though Hadrian never envisioned that Islam would do this because it wasn't invented for another 600 years. But anyway, that is where the term comes from. So there's no, you know, no forgetting what happened here. Um, anyway, obviously Muhammad didn't come along until, you know, 7th century really where where Islam took off in in the Middle East. But let let's let's not forget that even after Islam was invented, the area closer to the Mediterranean, you know, what, what was called Transjordan, which is modern-day Israel, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, it was not Muslim. It was a mixture of everything. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you had – first of all, you had a continual Jewish presence, you know, from the time of the destruction of the temple around 70 um, – you know, 78 AC um, until, you know, when, when modern-day Israel – came to fruition. They, they weren't always living in every corner because the Romans kicked them out of Jerusalem. Some areas, they were always living in the Galilee in the north, um, near Tzfat, some other uh, ancient biblical areas. And you had Christians. You had the Maronites living in Lebanon. You know, Lebanon was very much a Christian state. The, the, the Muslim, you know, Islam obviously took off in Arabia and those areas, <laughs> You know, further east in Iraq, although you did have a lot of ancient uh, Christians there as well, ancient Jews, Druze, Kurds. You know, people forget that Jews and Christians have more of an entitlement to Muslim lands, so-called Muslim lands, than the Muslims are entitled to Judea and Samaria and Israel. I mean, the Jews were living in these areas, Morocco, Tunisia, um, Iraq, Heck, Saudi Arabia. I mean, what do you think Medina was? It was a Jewish city before Muhammad came and slaughtered them. So, I mean, they they lived there. They got expelled, uh, you, you know, in the in the 20th century. No one ever talks about the right of return to those areas. It's kind of kind of kind of interesting there. But anyway, you know, the Roman Empire morphed into the Byzantine Empire, and when the Byzantines, you know, collapsed in the seventh century, really from the seventh century on, there was no stable nation state created in that area the Holy Land, until Israel was created in the 20th century, and it was allocated for, you know, during the 1917-1922 negotiations, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, David Newman is a chair of geopolitics and dean of the Faculty of Humanities at Ben-Gurion University. He had had a very interesting statement on this. He said, there never were any real nation-states in this region. If what we mean by a nation-state is a state populated almost entirely by a single national group. Prior to the invasion of Iraq almost 20 years ago, the Middle East was perceived by an ignorant world as a homogenous Arab region. The concept of the nation-state was a European idea. The state structure was no more than a recent imposition. Um, so that's the point. There was no there, there was no nation-state at all, much less an Arab-Muslim nation-state. It went back and forth for a while. Um, you know, you had the... Obviously, the different waves of the Crusades when the Christians and Muslims fought over it. Like I said, you always had a Jewish presence, um, but there was, there was no stable government. Um, the, the final stable government you had were the Ottoman Turks. They were Muslim, but they were not Arab. Um, 
they conquered it, I believe, in 1516 and just loosely held on to it as just one area of their empire until they were finally defeated in World War I. Come World War I, you're starting with a clean slate again. It was post-World War I where all these nation states were carved out, a lot of them pretty randomly. Um, you know, that's the thing. You can't look at Israel in a vacuum. You have to look at the entire area going all the way through Iraq, through Saudi Arabia, through Egypt, Syria. You know, all these areas were created then, the same time that Israel was created. So, you know, there, there is, so the point is there was no distinct Arab Muslim state in that area ever, ever. You know, again, forgetting the fact that the Jews owned it before Islam was created and they were persecuted and kicked out. Um, you know, they never ceded it over and then they, they came back, got it in a defensive war, yada, yada. But just the, the modern history from World War One, there was no nation state. So anyway, you know, the British owned it as part of their empire after World War One. So when the British kicked out the Ottoman Turks from Transjordan, which is again comprised of the modern day Israel and Jordan, they renamed it the British Mandate of Palestine. So hard, So again, they, they kind of resurrected that term that was there from the Roman Empire. Nothing to do with Arabs and Muslims. The area was called Palestine. The British Mandate of Palestine. Again, and that was originally a term uh, meant to describe Jews both in the ancient time and then in the, in, in the modern era during you know, 1917 to 1922. So it has nothing to do, the term has nothing, nothing to do with Arab Muslims. In fact, Jews born there at the time were called Palestinians, you know, a label that can be found on passports of those born in Israel before 1948 to this day. Most Arabs living there in the 20th century, they were recent arrivals, you know, kind of from other Arab lands who are attracted to the land by the, the revitalization taking place under Jewish immigration. The, the, the place was, and, and this is a biblical prophecy, um, that the land will always remain desolate with the Jews out of it. As late as 1867, when Mark Twain visited the area, he noted that the land was desolate, a reality that was portended a number of times in the Bible. Uh, there was nothing doing there. You had a couple of random Bedouins. You had remote areas where Christians lived, where Muslims lived, where Jews lived. But again, there was certainly no Arab Muslim nation state. Um, I mean, that, that is just the biggest myth around. Uh, but but the Jews, on the other hand, had a presence in the land for over 3,000 years. They had a nation state that was sacked by Rome, and then they created another one. The idea that an Arab-Palestinian label has any legal or historical legitimacy was clearly eschewed by the PLO officials in the early days when they were actually honest about their goals. In an interview with the Dutch newspaper on, what is it, March 31st, 1977, a PLO executive committee member, Zahir Mushain, said the following. I want you guys to listen carefully. Quote, the Palestinian people does not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for our Arab unity. In reality, today there is no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people to oppose Zionism. <laughs> I mean, that's basically John Kerry's speech. 
That's a fulfillment. I mean, what he predicted would happen to delegitimize the Jewish control through the use of the term Palestinian, that, that is coming true. So, um, you know, this, this whole thing is, is absolutely nonsense, but, but let's, so let, let's talk about more modern era. What happened post-World War One? the creation of the Jewish state, where Arabs fit in and where the so-called green line, the pre-67 borders, Judea and Samaria, what they call the West Bank, which is a misnomer because the West Bank of what? It's the West Bank of Jordan, and it doesn't belong to Jordan, and Jordan's not even asking for it back. They want to create a new Palestinian entity, Arab Palestinian entity, that never existed. So let's uh, let's unpack the, the history basically starting from 1917 until 1948. Originally, the entire mandate of Palestine – Again, not an Arab term. The term that the British created, which included all of Jordan to the east of the Jordan River and the entire so-called West Bank. All of that area was originally designated first and foremost for a Jewish state pursuant to the 1917 Balfour Declaration. The, the famous British minister that, that agreed to this idea that the Jews need a homeland. So – Let's not forget that the entire Palestinian mandate, mandate for Palestine, which includes the entire Israel, the entire so-called West Bank, and the entire state of – modern state of Jordan, in other words, Transjordan, that was earmarked for a Jewish state. Now, you might think, well, wow, that's a lot of land. But if you look in terms of the broad broad agenda there, it made sense because – the Arabs were getting Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, which is a much larger swath of land. Nobody had any nation states there. I mean, they're they're all colonized. You had empires, Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire. There was no Muslim Arab nation state. Obviously, they had a tremendous Muslim presence in places like Saudi Arabia and, um, you know, Iraq, Syria. Although a lot of that was really through the, the murder of a lot of Christians and, and Jews, the expulsion of a lot of Christians and Jews from those areas, which you know those two religions obviously predated Islam even in the Arab areas, of course in the Arab areas. But anyway, let's not forget that the original Israel, so to speak, was supposed to be the entire area. But obviously due to tremendous Arab pressure and a desire of the British to choose the path of least resistance, remember the squeaky wheel always gets the oil. So the hapless Jews there, you know, versus these violent jihadists, it's no different than it is nowadays. The British were like, we want to wash our hands of this. We're not going to, you know, we don't want to get involved in that. So they wound up giving over the entire east of the Jordan River, that entire area, um, as the emirate of Transjordan, which essentially became Jordan. And that is, by the way, and I, I wish, uh, gosh, I wish I had better maps here. But if you look on any map, you could see this, just Google, you know, size of Israel compared to other countries. But anyway, the modern state of Jordan represents 77% of this landmass of the mandate of Palestine. So right away, 77% of that original land was given to, to, to create yet another Arab state, Jordan. So now Israel is left with a tiny area for, for a Jewish state. Um, 
and 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 obviously, you know, Jordan became a full-fledged recognized Arab state in 1946, just two years before the modern state of Israel. So again, there's no pre-existing entitlement. It was all carved out around the same time. So accordingly, to the extent that Arab-Palestinian state exists, it's the modern state of Jordan. In an interview with the New Republic in 1974, Yasser Arafat, who is the chairman of the PLO, he admitted that what you call Jordan is actually Palestine. Um, you know, even even Abbas, the current leader, has indicated that Jordan was the was the same as Palestine. Um, so there's your two state solution. In 1922 is when they carved out that two state solution. Israel, the Jewish people were supposed to get it all. And again, when I say all, I mean all of the mandate for Palestine, not all of the Middle East. Um, most of that was carved out for Arab states. But of course, Arabs, you know, the Arabs erupted and went crazy. So they create this was the solution. Seventy seven percent of trans of of the mandate for Palestine east of the river went for an Arab state. The 23 percent remaining west was to be allocated for the Jewish state. Um, I just want to quote you some some other stuff indicating this in on December 26, 1981. King Hussein, the original King Hussein in Jordan, told an Arab newspaper, quote, um, the truth is that Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. Walid Shabbat, the f- former PLO terrorist that you know converted over, became a patriot, uh, he said, why is it that on June 4th, 1967, I was a Jordanian and overnight I became a Palestinian? We considered ourselves Jordanian until the Jews returned to Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden we were Palestinians. They removed the star from the Jordanian flag and all at once we had a Palestinian flag. Unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, this this is this is where it's at. Jordan is your Palestinian state there. Now, what happened was we all know that this is not about land. Because if it's about land, the remaining part of Israel, and I'm trying to remember if I if I have the number in front of me, it's something like one five hundred seventy-fifth of the Middle East. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so it's a tiny little area there. Tiny area. They don't need it. They don't want it. It's never been significant um, to Islam. It's only retroactive that they've made a big deal of it. It's all about jihad. It's all about fulfilling the Islamic duty to liquidate the Jews. Um, it just that's what it was. So they couldn't even allow them to have the twenty three percent remaining from, um, you know, Transjordan area, even as Jews were being persecuted, needed place to go. So throughout the twenties and thirties, Arabs flooded the area. Um, again, they never really lived there before, but they flooded the areas to the west of the Jordan River. They came from Jordan. They Now, Jordan wasn't officially recognized, but that area, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, um, to flood the remaining areas that were to be carved out for a Jewish state. They did everything they can to ensure the British that it was in their best interest to deny the Jewish people any statehood. So keep in mind, I haven't gotten to Judea and Samaria yet. This is east of the Jordan River, west of the Jordan River. Everything west was supposed to be a Jewish state. There was no concept even in the Arab world that there was anything special about Judea and Samaria, so-called the West Bank, different than Tel Aviv or Haifa or you know the part on the coastal plain there that is the so-called pre-67 Israel. Um, that part was – they disputed it all. They wanted to take it all over and wipe out every single Jew that lived there. 
um, exactly what Hitler wanted to do around that same era. And it's no um, coincidence that Hitler was very close with al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the first Palestinian Arab, so-called Palestinian Arab leader. Um, You know, it was the same kind of goals of Mein Kampf. This was all about wiping out Jews. It had nothing to do with land. So the the British obliged their requests and put a moratorium on Jewish immigration. You have that whole business, and they literally condemned hundreds of thousands of Jews, if not millions more, to their death in the Holocaust by shutting off Jewish immigration. So while they allowed um, the Arabs to, to flood the region from the other countries – and again, keep in mind, I mean, they're getting 500 times more land, but they and then to begin with, they got 77 percent of what was supposed to be under the Balfour De- Declaration part of Israel. Well, they flooded it and they couldn't allow Israel to have that either. But at the same time, the British shut off Jewish immigration. Now, this was a clear violation of the 1922 League of Nations mandate for Palestine. And I write about this in my article. That was the last binding international legal agreement. The 1922 League of Nations mandate for Palestine, that's what divided up the area post-World War I. Now, the Allied victors from World War I, they granted the British control over the territory for the express purpose of establishing and fostering, quote, a national home for the Jewish people pursuant to the Balfour Declaration. So restricting Jewish immigration during the Nazi takeover of Europe was not exactly in the spirit of the preamble of this very mandate, which recognized, quote, the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. Again, so far, I have not mentioned anything about Judea and Samaria. This was the entire land west of the Jordan River. In fact, The British collaboration with Arab terrorists represented a flagrant violation of Article 6 of the mandate, and I'll link to this mandate um, in our show notes, which called on the British to, quote, facilitate Jewish immigration under suitable conditions and shall encourage in cooperation with the Jewish agency referred to in Article 4, closed settlement by Jews on the land, including state lands and wastelands not required for public purposes. So not only was... Jewish settlement, you hear a lot about the settlements, not only was that not illegal, it was mandated, required by the British to facilitate that um, in all of the lands west of the Jordan River. Okay? Now, throughout the 20s and 30s, like we said, local Arabs and their surrounding neighbors fomented a violent jihad against the Jews living in their nascent homeland. The riots were incited by the Grand Mufti, um, what's his name, Haj Amin al-Hussein, Yabba-dabba-doo, as Mark Levin always says, a close ally of Hitler. Um, and by the way, he was eventually expelled from the region and he fled to da 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 Germany. After much turmoil and Arab rioting in 1947, the UN recommended a plan via the non-binding Resolution 181 to partition off most of the land to the west of the Jordan River for a new Arab state. And now this wasn't synonymous with the pre-67 borders, but this is the first time in 1947 where you had this concept of creating yet another Arab state to the west of the Jordan River. And Israeli leaders were willing to accept it at the time, um, but and, and they could have gotten it legally. Israel could have given it up. 
but the Arab nations rejected it. Israel accepted it. Arab nations rejected it. By rejecting this recommendation, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. I have an article on this as well. I'll link to in the show notes um, why Judea and Samaria under Israel is enshrined into international law. And all these subsequent resolutions saying Israel must withdraw, withdraw, we need to create another Arab state. They're just recommendations. But even the recommendation was rejected. That By rejecting it, the Arabs permanently lost any legal or moral grounds to demand another state west of the Jordan River. The only binding resolution, as we mentioned before, of international law that has never been countermanded to this day is that July 1922 mandate for Palestine adopted by the League of Nations, 54 nations, um, it created the national homeland everywhere, everywhere west of the Jordan River for the Jewish people. Um, again, it was given over to the British uh, to have custody to oversee it. But the four principled allied powers met at the in San Romeo conference in Italy. I believe it was April 1920, but don't quote me on it. Um, it was signed by something like 51 nations, the San, uh, San Remo Com- conference. Um, that's really where all the world powers adopted in into international law the principles of the Balfour Declaration. And and by the way, again, this wasn't just about Israel. That was the same conference that created the same conference that created the Jewish state to the west of the Jordan River. Also created Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Iraq as Arab states. So in the same legitimacy that Israel has over Judea and Samaria. Um, is you know the Arabs have to Saudi Arabia. Now the legality of the 1922 mandate was adopted that same year by the U.S. Congress H.J. Res. 360. It was signed into law by President Warren Harding. Now, once the League of Nations was disbanded and the United Nations took its place in 1945, they created their charter. There's something called Article 80 of the UN Charter that the UN seems to forget. And that's when they agreed – again, the, the, the League of Nations was disbanded, but they agreed to honor all agreements of boundaries that were created under the League of Nations. They agreed not to, quote, alter in any manner the rights whatsoever of any states or any peoples or the terms of existing international instruments to which members of the United Nations may respectively be parties. So thus, the mandate for Palestine adopted by the League of Nations was the last legally binding document. Now, what does it say in the League, in, in the Mandate for Palestine? Article 5, again, of the mandate says, quote, The mandatory, meaning the mandate, shall be responsible for seeing that no Palestine territory shall be ceded or leased to or in any way placed under the control of the government of any foreign power. In other words, that was the Jewish state, period. Any time afterwards, if you want to say Jews shouldn't live here, they, they should pull out. That is a political argument. That is not a legal argument. The UN article Charter Article 80 uh, enshrined that part of the League of Nations, the Mandate of Palestine, into law. And by the way, it wasn't vague. It was known at the time as the Jewish people's provision. It was, a, it was designed for that. Like it or hate it, that's what happened. You can't deny history. So this is the history. So – Again, to begin with, to, to begin with, if we just stopped here, there is no right of an Arab Muslim state west of the Jordan River, and you know Israel certainly has the right to keep it. But it gets even worse than that. 
We all know what happened immediately upon declaration of the Jewish state in 1948 in the tiny swath of non-contiguous land near the coast, a little bit in the south, in the desert. Real, just nothing doing there. All the Arabs in the surrounding countries set out to destroy the tiny Jewish state. Right? Not Judea and Samaria. It was to wipe out every last vestige and to exterminate the Jews. Now, I, I, I want you guys to remember, at that time, the tiny it was Israel was three thousand square kilometers, just two point five percent of its proposed size in nineteen seventeen, and just eleven percent of the land west of the Jordan River, allocated for a Jewish state in nineteen twenty two. That's how little they wound up having the ability to declare, but they felt it was better something than nothing. Um, you know. And 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 then this is when you know the Arab the Arab League secretary at the time, um, General Azam Pasha, declared, "quote This will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre, which will be spoken of like the Mongolian massacres and the Crusades." So again, with that act of aggression, they forfeited any right to any land west of the Jordan River. Not that they ever had it. After over a year of fighting, God's providence allowed a ragtag of Jewish militia forces to pretty much fight off the forces of the Arab Legion, allowing them to gain a little bit more breathing room in the south. The Galilee, Israel now grew under, at least my rough calculation, to 6.7% of the original proposal and 30% of the 1922 mandate land west of the river. Now, while Jordan remained in control of Judea and Samaria, this is where the green line comes in, that the 19... Uh, 49 armistice lines and and egypt conquered the gaza strip from the south the arab communities in those areas many of whom recently immigrated like we said they were not in, indigenous to that area um they never established a unique arab palestinian state during that time so let, let right from 1949 when jordan stole judea and samaria and egypt stole gaza in a war of aggression um, under the guise of wiping out every area of Israel, even over the Green Line, um, they never create an Arab state, a new Arab state. Those territories always remained under the control of Jordan and Egypt, respectively. Meanwhile, nobody recognized Jordan's occupation of Judea and Samaria, and it was just called the West Bank, right? It was no man's land. It, it was an illegal occupation, Um. And then at that point, the Jordanians and the Egyptians expelled all of the Jews that had lived there for generations and then flooded the area with new Arabs. And by the way, one thing that is just a crying shame, just to deviate a little bit here from our discussion, it was during those years where they destroyed so many artifacts around Jerusalem. Um, you know, anyone who's gone there and has gone on some of the tours, it really brings the veracity of the Bible to life. You see it. It's incontrovertible. All the archaeological diggings and everything, you see you see the Bible. It every the events, the timing, the dating, it's it's all true. There's there's no there's no way you could deny it. So much of that was destroyed during those nineteen years or so that the Jordanians had control over. It's just such a shame. But anyway, um you know, so this is important when setting the stage for the Six Day War in 1967, in which Jordan and Egypt lost those territories to Israel in yet another war of aggression. So once again, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria sought out to destroy Israel, wipe out every Jew in the land, and come back and take the remaining land. 
once again, in a matter of six days, God performed one of the greatest miracles in the modern era, literally on par with biblical times, and they defeated the collective Arab armies, kicked them out of the whole area. Egypt lost control of Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula. Syria lost the Golan Heights, and Jordan lost the so-called West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. So, I mean, to begin with, no country that wins territory in a purely defensive war, especially when the land is needed to serve as a buffer zone, is illegally occupying that land. No, I mean, so Israel is not illegally occupying that land. Um, they were merely reclaiming the territory that was supposed to be a part of their original state pursuant to the 1922 agreement, not to mention their historical biblical claims um, you know, prior to the Roman Empire. So Jordan and Egypt lost full control, any legitimacy over that land. Um, now, by the way, it's also important to note that unlike their Arab counterparts, who either murdered or expelled those living in the territories they conquered, Israel granted unprecedented freedoms to the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. Um, now, I know some people say, well, all the checkpoints and all the stuff they put up, yeah, that's a modern-day thing because they'll kill all the Jews. I mean, um, you know, one thing that's very important is that even the most so-called right-wing Israeli Jewish settlers – have no inherent problem with non-Jews living there. I mean, that's why Christian the Christian population has tripled over the last number of decades there. Um, they have no problem with other people living there. They have no problem with Muslims living there. It's just that they'll kill them. So they, you know, have to they have to clamp down on them. I mean, there's no otherwise they they just couldn't live. Um but anyway, at the time that Arabs and Muslim countries expelled eight hundred fifty thousand Jews from countries within the Middle East. So again, keep that in mind when they talk about the right to return. What about the 850,000 Jews and who knows how many descendants they have that were kicked out of the, you know, what are now considered Muslim areas, North Africa and the Middle East in 1967. So I, I could go on. I mean, this is already our longest podcast ever. We're going into the 40-minute marker here. Um, but the rest is history. You know, Israel... Uh, kept trying to say, well, maybe we'll give you some land, we'll create a new thing, we'll create a new new land. But the entire the entire premise of a distinct Palestinian people is nonsense. Um, now, I, I just want to point out just one final thing that, you know, after we just said legally and historically there's no right, geographically and security-wise, it makes no sense Anyone who has looked at a map, it has made it makes no sense to create a new Arab state west of the Jordan River unless your goal is to destroy even the other half of Israel. It literally doesn't. Um, if someone were to come to Earth from Mars and listen to the world leaders discuss Israel and the two-state solution with a hyper focus on the last on every last morsel of land, the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, Golan Heights, this and that. He would come away with the impression that the land in dispute is some massive contiguous region. The reality is that modern – and again, I wish I had maps here, but modern-day Israel without the West Bank is only 8,522 square miles. That's roughly the size of New Jersey, state of New Jersey. When coupled with the West Bank, that area only expands by another 2,100 square miles. Now, New Jersey has almost 9 million residents and is already the most densely populated state in the country, right? Do you know that Israel's population is roughly 8.2 million and rapidly growing? Does it make sense 
to deny them the 2,100 square miles they were originally granted and won back in a defensive war, just based on geography alone, it makes no sense to deny that from them. Um, they're already as populated as the most populous state in uh, America with you know, the size of New Jersey. Now, also, none of the proponents of a two-state solution, so-called, and again, I just want to mention, there is a two-state solution. It's called Jordan, and most of these people are Jordanians. Um, but they've never explained how two independently contiguous states could be created by uniting Gaza and Judea and Samaria. I mean, presumably, there's an unspoken plan to grab even more land from the heart of Israel in the south or the north to make a proposed Arab-Palestinian state contiguous between all its territories. I mean, look at a map. You cannot do it. Now, let's take this a step further. The Arab-Muslim countries constitute a landmass. I, I actually just found it as I'm talking. It's 640 times the size of Israel. I said 575, 640 times. Does it make any sense to squeeze the last few thousand miles from the only Jewish state in order to create an Arab national state in the Holy Land for the first time in our history? If there are well over 12 million square miles of Muslim lands, and you're talking about the measly 2,100 square miles of Judea and Samaria, it's clear that anyone peddling a two-state solution has either never looked at a map of the region or is implicitly supporting a final solution of pushing the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, there is no way to sugarcoat this. I mean, this is, you know, and I'm not even getting into the geography of how Israel will be relegated to Auschwitz borders and just 10 to 12 miles wide in some areas and, you know, on a, on a coastal plain while the Sumerian mountains will have all these rockets and they'll be able to just destroy Ben-Gurion Airport and everything. Um, you know, and also uh, the other thing a lot of people don't realize is that with the growth of ISIS and all these groups, if Israel gave up the Jordanian border and you had a Palestinian state controlling that, you understand ISIS and similar groups will be in there in, within seconds, the same way they were in, there in the Gaza Strip because um, you know Israel gave up control of the border with Egypt and you know all the tunnels and everything. So you're going to have an ISIS presence from Iraq through the Mediterranean Sea, basically. I mean, so, so, I mean, even if you subscribe to this notion that the Palestinians are these peaceful, loving people, um, they're not going to have control over that. I mean, ISIS is going to take that over very quickly, um, and it just, it's not good for Jordan. It's not good for anyone, really. Nothing to do with Israel. But anyway, there, there's so much more to say. Um, but, you know, the, the, the point is this. Let me just say this in conclusion, and we really got to go here. They're, they're going to have my uh, my hide here for putting on such a long podcast. It's incontrovertibly clear from a legal, historical standpoint that Israel has just as much of a right to exist in its so-called post-1967 borders as it does its pre-67 borders. It's also patently obvious that from a geographical, moral, and security standpoint that anyone advocating a two-state solution is implicitly denying Israel's right to exist in any capacity. Israel has already surrendered 94% of the land that it required in defensive war, namely the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza. Anyone promoting an Arab Muslim state in the remaining 6% that would gut the heart of the tiny Jewish state, especially in light of the fact that Muslims control a landmass 640 times greater than Israel, 
is either woefully ignorant or supports something much more sinister. Anyway, we'll have a lot more on what to do just politically in the here and now next week, but just wanted to go back, give you all a history lesson. Please share this with your friends. Let's get the truth. That's what we're here for at Conservative Review. We had a great year here. It's been an honor. We've we've probably put out, you know, just from my own vertical, several hundred articles this year covering every major policy issue, the courts, the you know, legislature, states, foreign policy, fiscal, social issues. We got our CRTV, we got our podcast here. Thanks so much for making 2016 a great year for Conservative Review. Happy New Year. Enjoy your weekend off. We'll see you on the other side. God bless. And this has been a closeout of year 2016 of the Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.